0: As you're being seated, turn to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, and find verse 28, and we will move through three verses today, but I'll go ahead and prepare you that um, I'm going to share a lot of different verses, and I'm going to put most of them up on the screen, and so I encourage you, if you can see that this morning, to Follow along there as we go through some different scriptures today. Last week, we covered um, 828, and we, um, of course, know this familiar passage. Let's look at it. If you found Romans 828, say word. word. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who were called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate or predestine to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called them he also justified and whom he justified them he also glorified what we see in this passage is that the great promise of Romans 8:28 that God works all things together for good isn't that a good promise a great promise maybe one of the greatest in the bible that promise is not for everyone Look at the verse in verse 28 again. It is for a certain group of people, and he describes them by saying they are those who do what? Love God. Now, sometimes we probably, we may love God more than others. This verse does not mean that it's only those who are perfect at loving God, because none of us are, right? Like, like at home with our spouses, we sometimes love them It can can sway based on things that happen, maybe. Yeah, I have an amen on that one. But our love for God sometimes might be on the high. Sometimes it might be in a rut. But as believers, we should all have a love for God. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament often talks about people who love God just describing the, the believers. And so that's what it is here. The people we're talking about here, the people that Romans 8.28 applies to, the people that can hold on to the promise that God works all things together for good, are those who love God, which is to say, believers in Jesus Christ. But what these verses go on to tell us, in a way that is, I think, pretty deep and spiritual and great, is that it's not our love for God that causes this promise to apply to our lives. Primarily, it's His love for us. It's His love for us. We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us, the Scripture says. What this text teaches us is that God accomplishes the complete redemption of His people from start to finish. Some of you have heard Philippians 1 and 6 where it says, where Paul wrote, I am sure, I am sure of this thing, that he who began a good work in me will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul writes in Romans 8, God began a good work in these Romans, in these people, and he will not abandon them. God has done a good work in us as believers And listen to me, church, no matter what we go through, he will never abandon us. That's the promise of Romans 8, 28. Some things I'm going to share with you today in these verses, I'll be honest with you. I told you all when I first came here, I'm going to be very honest, and I've tried to do that. Um, Some of the things I'm going to share with you here today, I never heard growing up. Some of the things I'm going to share with you here today, I have been unable to preach some of these things freely in some of my previous ministries. And, um, if anyone has questions about these things, uh, we can talk about these things later, but I'm going to try to share with you God's word as best I can, as I've always tried to do. And so I hope you'll listen carefully and, um, we'll go through it. Prayerfully consider what it says. I want to just start with this. And I think you would agree with this. Salvation is God's plan, right? From start to finish, he who began the good work will complete it. But we need to see, and we see in Scripture here, that God's plan goes back further than when I received Jesus. God's plan goes back farther than when Jesus died on the cross. God's plan goes back farther than when uh, Moses led the children of Israel out of the Exodus. God's plan goes farther back even than Him creating creating Adam and Eve. God's plan is an eternal plan. That's what we're going to see here. Man, when I came to see these truths that I was never taught growing up, by the way, I only learned these truths by studying the Word myself closely. It changed so many things about my life and my ministry. It reminded me of this quote I often tell you guys from Jonathan Edwards, which is that you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's how I feel anyway. I contributed nothing to my salvation except the sin that made it necessary. I want to say this to you before we dive into these verses more closely, that I certainly can't go in as much detail as I would like to on these things this morning, but I'll do my best to give them justice. I'm going to give you five words, if you're taking notes, to jot down. Five words, and the title of this sermon is The Golden Chain of Redemption. That's not original with me. Somebody else calls these verses the golden chain of redemption. And we will see how five links of this chain work together. The first one, the first word you need to write down is foreknowledge. We'll see that again in verse 29. For whom he did foreknow. Again, that's a word we don't necessarily talk about in church a lot. I don't know that I've really mentioned that word to you guys in passing. So there's people, a group of people, those who love God, According to verse 28, they've been called according to his purpose. God foreknew them. So, is this word in the Bible anywhere else? Yes, let me show you a couple of places. We'll put those up there. 1 Peter 1 and 2, it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In Romans eleven 2, we'll study this, you know, eventually. It says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. How about in Acts 2, when Peter preaches there on the day of Pentecost? It says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so we see this word foreknowledge in many texts. And if you just take the word to break it down, it looks like it says know. And you might say, well, that's simple. God knew beforehand all things. Would you agree with that? I agree with that. God is omniscient. He knows all things. But that's not specifically what this word is saying. Let me give you another verse. Genesis 4.1. This word in Genesis 4.1, you see there on the screen, is the same no as we find in Romans chapter 8. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore, a, and bore Cain, their son. So when we see the word no in the Old Testament here, that's not just knowing facts about, does that mean Adam knew facts about Eve? <laughs> no, right? It means he intimately knew her, and she conceived and bore Cain. It's the same type of word. And so when we get over into the New Testament and we see these other uses of the word "know," it's not simply knowing facts. This means God had an intimate knowledge of his people before the foundation of the world. Specifically, it means this, that God chose to enter into a relationship Beforehand. Isn't it amazing? You, you can take one word and study it in the Bible, and this could be a whole sermon, this one word. Let me read to you what one commentator said about this. He said the foreknowledge of God is far more than his ability to see into the future. His foreknowledge is a true knowing of what will come to pass based on his free choice. God decrees what will come to pass. In other words, foreknowledge is not just intellectual, it is personal and relational. Let me make an illustration that's not perfect. This is not a perfect illustration. But uh, back in college, Jesse and I met. I've told you all that story before. And so we began to talk, right? And I was interested in her. She was interested in me. And so, of course, back in those days, we didn't have social media and things like that. But we began to just date or talk, right? Go out, ask questions, find out about your, your family, find out what you enjoy, what your future plans are. And when you're dating someone, that's how it goes, right? You're trying to find out information about them. But once you become serious and especially once you get married and move in and spend a lot of time with a person you become much more intimate right at first you might know some things about the person but once like some of you know once you've been married for a while you know everything about the person pretty much right you know what the, you can finish their sentences can't you you know what they want more than they do sometimes listen here's why i said that's an imperfect illustration when it comes to god and his people He did not enter into the relationship with you fully just when Christ died. He did not enter into the relationship with you only when you believed, although that's part of it. The Bible tells us repeatedly that God loved his people before the foundation of the world. I'm going to show you that scripture in a minute. He foreknew, he foreloved, he foredained his people before the creation of the world. Let me give you the second word. The second link to this golden chain, it says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also did predestine to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn firstborn among many brethren. Let's look at that word predestine. That's your second word in the golden chain. I have to tell you the story. I was once in a church, and I was sitting in the back on a Wednesday night Bible study, and the pastor was teaching on something, I'm not sure what he was even teaching on, and I think someone asked a question or something like that, and he said this, and I quote, he said, predestination is not in the Bible. And I was back in the back just looking through my Bible, and I'd been studying Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. And so the course, we'll see that in Ephesians 1 in a minute. And I was like, wait a minute, the word itself is actually in there. Do you see it here? Do you see the word? Can you also, or you hear me say it? For those he foreknew, he also did predestine. And so people might disagree on what that word means, but certainly it is in the Bible. And so if we're going to do justice to the scripture, we must talk about it. Look at the next scriptures I have for you. In Acts 2 and 23. I mentioned Acts 2 23 earlier, where it says, God the Father predestined to send his son Jesus to die by the hands of sinful men. Now you see it again in Acts 4, 28. It says, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, God predetermined before the creation of the world to send Jesus Christ to die for sinners. We see this in so many verses, especially regarding people being saved. Ephesians 1, this passage, I once spent six months meditating only on Ephesians 1. And it was one of the most blessed times of my spiritual life. Listen to the first part. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of whose will? His. And then a few verses later it says, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of whose will? His. Over and over again. As a matter of fact, if you look down, uh, Peter spoke twice about these predestined people, these elected people. He says, an apostle of Jesus Christ, there on the screen, to those who are the elect exiles. He also said in 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession." I know I'm giving you a lot of scripture this morning, but I want you to see this. This is not me. This is the word. How about Acts 13, 48? And when the Gentiles heard this, that is the preaching, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed or predestined to eternal life believed. So look at that verse. In Acts 13, 48, who believed? Those who had been appointed to eternal life. Some people take these verses and say, well, God, before the creation of the world, looked ahead and he knew that Kelby would put faith in Jesus, and so he knew that and said, he's going to put faith in me, so I appoint him or predestine him to be saved. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. Here's why. If God looked ahead and saw anything I did and said, he's going to believe in me, I'll do this. That would make me responsible for my salvation ultimately. Ultimately it would. It would make that faith a work. Listen, we want to always preach that salvation is 100% God from start to finish. If we're going to sing amazing grace, we need to understand that grace is 100% God pouring out a gift and a blessing on our lives. Look at this next verse. We'll talk about this uh, later as well. Romans 9, if we have that one up there. We, sorry. I can read it to No, we can turn to it. We're right there. Turn in your Bibles to it. There you go. That makes sense. Uh, of course. Look at Romans 9, verse 11. It's talking here about um, Rebekah having Jacob and Esau, and it says, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. And that's that's the verse I want to focus on. The purpose of election might stand not of what works, but of him that calls. The point here is that God's choosing or predestining or foreknowing or electing, whatever word you want to use, is an unconditional thing. If God put conditions on it, then it would not be by grace, it would be by works. When I first studied these things and learned these things and came to believe these things, my mind was blown. Because I think somewhere deep down, I thought years ago, I played a part in my salvation. And I come to realize, God did it all. And if he wouldn't have done it all, I would have never, as we sang earlier, if he did not choose me first, I would have never chose him, period. I would, never, I would always go against God. I'm jumping ahead of myself. <laughs> Next verse. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4. How do we know? Because some people might have this question. You probably have the question right now. Well, how do you know who God's appointed to eternal life? How do you know who God's elected to eternal life? He answers it here in 1 Thessalonians. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Why? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. How do we know if we've been predestined to... Follow Jesus because we follow Jesus. We love him. We've surrendered our lives to him. We've repented and believed. That's those who God has called. The next verse there in 1 Thessalonians, he continues. And he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Some people have a problem with this text, but look, if you like the Old Testament, and I think many of you do, isn't the Old Testament all about God choosing a people and working with those people, Israel? Did God choose Israel because they were large or great or amazing? He chose them because he just wanted to choose them. That's the people he wanted to choose and work through, and he bestowed his love and blessing out on them. I want you to see again in some other scriptures here that this is an eternal doctrine. 2 Timothy 1.9, look at this. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. When did he give us this? He gave us this in Christ Jesus before the ages began. How about Revelation 13.8 and 17.8? They say the similar things here. It talks about people who have not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Which is to say there were people's names written down in the book of life before the foundation of the world. So to define this according to uh, one Author who I enjoy his definitions, he said, This predestination is an act of God before creation in which he chooses people to be saved, not on any account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. So some people might hear this and say, Well, then why should we do anything? Why do my choices even matter? If God's already got things planned out, why do my choices matter? Well, let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says this if you do not repent, And if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you will not be saved. Isn't that right? But if you do repent and you do believe, you will be saved. Though God does have things planned out, the means by which people are saved is repentance and belief. Period. You must repent. You must believe. How about this? Some people might say, well, then if that's true, we don't even need to preach. I've had people tell me that before. I had a preacher one time. We should, a preacher now, a minister, why should we even preach? And by the way, later on he he began to believe like me, but um, why should we even preach? Here's why we should preach because Romans says faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by what? The word of God. So does God have things planned out? I believe 100% yes, but but must we preach? Is the preaching, the word, the means by which God saves people? Absolutely. We must preach it, we must share it, we must live it. The sovereign God saves souls by the preaching of his word. How about this? Why should we I've heard this before. Why should we even do missions? Why should we do missions? Look, the means by which God saves souls around this world is missions. That's the means he uses. Why should we, someone said, why should we even pray? If we truly believe God is the one who saves, we should pray. If you believe God is the one who saves and you have a lost loved one, why would you not be praying for them to be saved? If you believe God is sovereign, if you believe God can save any lost soul, and he can't, he saved Paul. He saved people like us. He can save. We should pray. We should do missions. We should preach the gospel. And we always, at our church, I know we always will. Ultimately, I want you to look at this next verse. This is John 1. It reminds us in John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And how were they born again? Was it by... The blood or the the will of the flesh or the will of man? No. Why were they born again? Why were we born again? By God. By the will of God. Here's why I love this doctrine. You ready? This doctrine is a comfort. Think about that. If God has loved you since before he created Adam and Eve, do you think God is going to abandon you now? He's not, is he? He's never going to abandon it. If you think God, if you believe the Scripture, that God has always looked ahead and loved us and known us and sent Christ to die for us, do you think he's not going to work your present circumstances out for his good, for your good. He is. This is a comfort to me, this doctrine, because I don't believe anything in this world happens by chance, by luck, by circumstance. I used to believe in that stuff. I used to be superstitious. Now I'm just a little stitious, but... Not, not really. I believe God is sovereign over all. Yep. Even when things are hard, right? Yep. Even when we lose loved ones, we get sick, we go through troubles. It's not fun. It's not, it's not, it doesn't feel good, but he will work it for our good. Yep. Not only is this doctrine a comfort, it is a reason to praise him. In Ephesians 1, that text I gave you earlier, if you haven't read that, read Ephesians 1. But three times in Ephesians 1, it says God did these things. He chose us in him to the praise of the glory of the grace of God, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. You see, when we study these doctrines, it should cause all sense of pride and credit for salvation to be stripped away from us and to be given to God. Look, listen, I believe this is a major hindrance in the current church culture and the church culture many of us, probably all, most of us, have grown up in. The idea of easy believism, that I can just say a prayer and I'll for sure be saved, I don't have to really follow Jesus. And those types of belief make salvation more about the the person and their prayer than the Lord and grace. I want all credit for salvation to go to God. That glorifies Him more than anything else. And let me say this again, I've already mentioned this, but this doctrine, it's a comfort, it's a reason to praise God, and it is an encouragement to evangelize. We must do all we can to help the lost see the gospel and see Jesus. God uses people like us. Someone said the church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. He uses people like us to reach the lost. Listen to what Jesus said in John 10, 16. This is a comfort to evangelize. Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. In other words, they're not yet saved. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. How does he bring them into his flock now? Then it was Jesus going around preaching. How does Jesus bring them into his flock now? He uses the church and our ministry and our missions and our evangelism. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, therefore I endure everything, all the suffering, all the pain, all the traveling he did, I endure it all for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with glory. How many of y'all how many of y'all like to go fishing? I know Mark does. He went this week, I know. He's raised his hand back there. Have you ever gone fishing and not caught a thing? Isn't that the worst? You got a sun, All you got was a sunburn, you know, basically. But when you, when you know you're going somewhere and you know for sure you're going to catch fish, aren't you more excited to go fish? If I know I'm going to a hole that there are fish there, I'm going to I catch some every time, I'm excited to go catch some fish. This doctrine that we're discussing right now is God saying to us, go fishing, share the gospel, preach the word, and I guarantee along the way, there are sheep who are not yet come who will come. There are those who God has ready to save who will be saved as we go out and fish and share the gospel. What did Jesus tell those disciples? Follow me and I'll make you what? Fishers of, of men. I've got to read this part to y'all. I've got to read this to you. Y'all have heard me mention Charles Spurgeon? He probably gets quoted more than any other preacher ever, I'm, I'm guessing, outside the scriptures. Spurgeon, uh, again, he preached so many times every week, and every sermon he preached on Sunday, many people were, were, were saved. Just a great ministry of preaching and prayer. Listen to what he said. He had already been saved. But he said this about this doctrine. One week night, I was sitting in the house of God, and I wasn't thinking, this is some of y'all, he said, I wasn't thinking too much about the preacher's sermon. Okay, maybe not. He said, for I did not believe it. The preacher's sermon, by the way, was things I'm telling you this morning. Spurgeon said, I'm sitting there in a weeknight service in the house of God. I'm not really listening to the sermon because I don't agree with the things the preacher's saying. That's what he said. But then the thought struck me. Charles, how did you come to be a Christian? So he had this conversation with himself. He said, I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my life to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I I to pray? Oh, I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. Well, how came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith, and so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed from this day. And I desire to make it my confession that I ascribe my change, my salvation, completely to God. Let's move to the third word. The word is calling. This is in verse 28 and also in verse 30. It says, those... God works all things together for good for those who love God and for those who, you see it there, who are called according to his purpose. We also see it in verse 30. Those he did um, predestinate, them he also called. The next link in this golden chain is the calling. Now, there's two different types of calling. There's the general call, which I do every week. As I stand and preach the gospel, or as you might share about Jesus with a friend, you're giving a general call to someone to follow Jesus. But the calling here is not the general call. This is a specific, internal, effective, effectual call. Do you remember when you were saved? Do you remember the feeling of lostness and putting your faith in Jesus? In that moment... God made an effective, effectual, powerful call in your heart. And it wasn't like, please let me in, like Jesus is some beggar who needs permission. It was a open the blind eyes moment. It was a open the deaf ear moment. It was a Lazarus come forth from the dead moment. When God effectually calls us, that's what it is. Wayne Grudel said it's an act of God the Father speaking through human preaching in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. Isn't it amazing that the voice of God through his word into our hearts can bring the spiritual dead to life? As a matter of fact, 1 Peter 2.9 says, we read this earlier, the first part of it. The last part of it says God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Corinthians nine says God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. Acts 2.39 says the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone who the Lord our God, what? Calls to himself. How about 2 Thessalonians? It's our next scripture. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1.9 God saved us and called us to a holy calling. I want you to go back and notice Romans 8.30, if you will. Those God predestined, I mean those He foreknew, He predestined. Those He predestined, He called. Does it say God might have called them, could have called them, should have called them, or does it say he also did call them? Those he foreknew, he predestined, those he predestined, he called. That's what it says. Acts 16:14. You've heard the story of Lydia? She's a she's out there and going to this worship service. They're preaching, and it says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Isn't that, what, isn't that how church is? You can come in here and sit all day, every Sunday, and listen to preaching, but until the Lord opens your heart, you will not receive the things of God. That's just how it is. Look at Matthew twenty-two fourteen. For many are called, and that's a general call, by the way, many are preached to, but few are actually effectually called or, as Jesus said, chosen. Why are these teachings necessary? I just said it. In our natural state, we would never put our faith in Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of God. They are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Do you know people who have been to church forever or been around church forever who have Christian family, Christian friends, but they will not put their faith in Jesus? Like why why wouldn't they? Isn't it amazing to say, hey, I know God, and my sins are forgiven, I have eternal life. Isn't that good? Why won't they do it? It seems like everyone should want to sign up for that, right? Amen. Well, they, here's why they don't. They are sinners, and the natural person in our natural state of sin, we don't accept the things of God. We might hear it, but we don't truly accept it. And Ephesians two one says this even more explicitly when it says, we in our sin are dead in our sins and trespasses, dead. I, I, this has always stuck with me is the preacher friend of mine uh, that I knew who at the end of a sermon one day took out a quarter and he leaned over the pulpit and he said, if you want to be saved, come and take this quarter. It's as easy as taking this quarter. And I remember thinking, is it that easy? I mean, I know what he meant though. It, it is easy to just believe, repent and believe. But as he did that, as he looked out and said, take this quarter and you'll be saved, I thought to myself, the people out there who are lost are dead in their sin. And they're not going to get up and take the quarter until God makes them alive. It's called regeneration, we see in the scripture, or being born again. Until God makes us born again, until God regenerates us, we will not take the quarter. We will not trust in Jesus. The call of God is necessary. See, I call, we we pray and we call people to be saved every week. But until God makes that call in someone's heart, they won't be. Look at this verse. No one on the screen there. No one can come to me. Unless the Father who sent me, what, draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day, we would never call on Him if He didn't call on us. Will those whom God loved and foreknew and predestined and called, will they end up in heaven? John 6:37 says, "All that the Father gives me, all that the Father gives me, will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out." How many people that the Father planned to give to Jesus will come to Jesus? Every single one. Not one drop, this is a little bit off topic, but kind of on topic, not one drop of the blood of Jesus was wasted. He poured his blood out for all those who believe. And they will come to Christ as we preach the gospel and as we share the gospel, and he will never cast us out. My last two points are very quick. Number four, justification. Moreover, those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Does it say he might justify them? It says he what? He justifies them. We've talked about this at length in earlier parts of Romans. John MacArthur says justification means we're made right with God by God. Justification is when we believe in Jesus and we're made right with God. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. If you're in Romans 8 in your scripture there, look in verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that what? Justifies. How about Romans 8, 1. Because we're justified, there is therefore now no condemnation To those who are in Christ Jesus. To just sum up justification, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will never, ever suffer the penalty of your sin. You might suffer earthly consequences of sin, right? But we'll never suffer the penalty of sin. Why? Why won't we, who deserve to suffer the penalty of sin, why won't we suffer it? Because one person already suffered for us. Jesus Christ. Christ. Let me give you the last chain, number five, the last link of this chain. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he, this should be exciting, glorifies. He glorifies. This is the final step in the application of redemption, and this emphasizes our eternal security. We believe all those who come to Christ will always be with Christ. No one can snatch us from the Father's hand. We believe that. Why? Because, as I've already said, salvation began with God. No one can take it away from you, right? This glorification that we see here, this is what happens in the end when Christ returns and raises uh, the, the dead bodies of all believers and reunites them with their souls. And those who are here, he changes, you know, First Corinthians 15. And, and he gives us these glorified resurrection bodies. Romans 8, 17, we, we can look there in our, our text and see. It says, if so we suffer with him, we may be glorified with him. Romans eight twenty three and 24 says, we're waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Romans eight twenty four says, we have hope. In this hope, we are saved. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, we can put that up there. You know this, this verse so familiar, but the last part says the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Have you ever wondered what would that resurrection body look like? I think they'll be somewhat similar to our human bodies based on scripture, but way better, right? The 2.0 version. Can you imagine? How many of you woke up this morning with a pain of some kind? Or this past week? Most of us. How many of you wake up every day with a pain of some kind? tony thank you okay imagine the glorified body will have an eternity we can't even imagine it can we no pain no headache no struggles no sickness no covid no cancer no sadness no suffering we can't even imagine the glorified body i hope i have hair but and more muscles Ultimately, what this shows us is that God will bring full completion to his work of salvation. Verse 29 says, For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. I I didn't talk about that earlier, but to be conformed to the image of Jesus, we can certainly do that now to a degree. We can be like Christ. But what verse 29 really means is one day we will be like Christ. We'll be conformed to the image of Christ. As a matter of fact, let me give you two more verses. Philippians 3. It'll be on the screen. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. How about 1 John 3, 2? Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears... We shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Glorification. So we see these five chains, five links to a chain, a golden chain of salvation. And again, I can speak more on each of those, by the way, but I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. We need to come back and ask the question, what does this mean? What does all this theology and all this doctrine mean in context? And again, let me say it, all, we know God works all things together for good, for those who love God, because those are the ones whom God, from before the foundation of the world, entered into a relationship with. And God will not leave any of his people hanging. I love what writer Douglas Moo said about this. Listen, and this is we're almost at the very we're at the very end. Moose said, God's intention is to bring to glory every person who has been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Our assurance of ultimate victory rests on this promise of God. But Paul, ever the realist, knows that that ultimate victory may lie many years ahead. Years that might be filled with pain, anxiety, distress, and disaster. He also encourages us by reminding us that God sends His Spirit into the heart of everyone He justifies. The Spirit brings power and comfort to the believer in the midst of suffering and He brings assurance in the midst of doubt. Watch. Christians who are unduly anxious about their relationship to the Lord are failing to let the Spirit exercise that ministry. It is by committing ourselves anew to the life of devotion. Prayer Scripture reading and Christian fellowship that we enable the Spirit to have this ministry of assurance in our hearts. This Scripture, to me, is the greatest comfort I've ever read and known. We'll talk more about it next week, I guess, but look at verse 31. You don't really have to look at it. You know it. What then shall we say to these things? Because God has done all this from eternity to eternity. From A to Z. God's done it all for us to save us. What then shall we say to these things? Who can be against us? Now, a lot of people can be against us. But who will ultimately have victory over us? Will Satan have ultimate victory over us? Will sin have ultimate victory over you? Will selfish things have ultimate victory over you? Will society, the world around us, have ultimate victory over you? Will sickness have ultimate victory over you? No, no, and no. God has loved you. He set His sights on you. He called you. He saved you. And He will one day glorify you. And in the meantime... He will not abandon you. What a hope. What a salvation. What a God. What a Savior. Let's pray.